Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from the 1976 film Midway. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi there. So I have a story to tell you to kick off this episode. In May 2004, I went to Boston to visit some friends and to see the Boston Pops in action for the first time. But more than that, it was my first time seeing John Williams conduct a concert. And I was like a 13-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber concert. It was a completely transformative evening that intensified my admiration of John Williams and his career. On the program that evening was a performance of a lot of music that I already knew. Star Wars, Schindler's List, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, even Angela's Ashes. But there was one musical performance that was completely new to me. It was called The Midway March, and after it was played, I told myself that I must watch the film that contained this music. And so here we are 15 years later, and I have finally checked Midway off my list. Those of you who have seen Midway know that the Midway March doesn't really appear until the very end of the film. What I saw and heard before that was unlike anything I expected. And shortly, I'm going to get into how the music was part disappointment, part genius. Of course, there are a few John Williams scores that are like that, and my assessment of the score has nothing to do with the fact that it was the first one composed after Jaws. Williams was coming off a disastrous attempt at writing a musical for the London stage called Thomas and the King. It's the story of the friendship-turned-rivalry of King Henry II of England and his Archbishop Thomas Becket. The story was put on film in 1964, starring Peter O'Toole as Henry and Richard Burton as Thomas. I can't find a lot of information on the creation of this musical version, probably because it failed so miserably and was quickly forgotten. Based on the few details I could find, Williams and lyricist James Herbert started working on the songs in early 1974. Williams was quoted long before 1974 about not liking the art of songwriting. So it makes me wonder who convinced him to be a part of a stage musical that would require him to write a mass of 18 songs. The production debuted on October 16, 1975, and lasted for only 33 performances. Considering eight shows per week, that meant the show was shut down well before Christmas and never put on the stage again. Some reviews indicate that the story of Henry and Thomas was not fit for a musical, given that there is no conventional love story and no lighter moments to help lift the mood. The songs really aren't that great and there's no showstopper to really help lift the show. The album is out of print and very, very hard to find, but I really want to play a snippet of something for you. So I present the song, Am I Beautiful? Purple roses growing, blowing wild and Butterflies and bubbling streams of honeybees Sunshine warm and distant stars know who they are 
Am I beautiful? Am I weaving dreams, turning somersaults? Tell me, is it all true or false? It kind of feels like it was written in the 1970s. I'm sure the negative reviews and the early closing of the show in London had a negative effect on John Williams, even if his music wasn't the real fault of the show. So, getting back into movie music might have been a bit of a relief, and Williams went right into working on the score to Midway. Perhaps he was not in a good place mentally to work on a film score, but again, it might have been a welcome change. So, as I have said in previous episodes, Midway was written in 1975, but it was the last of the three films released in 1976. And when you watch the film, you, you could tell that Midway pretty much needed only a small amount of music based on the goal of creating a realistic recreation of the 1942 Battle of Midway. The movie feels more like a documentary than a film, even with the presence of about a dozen popular actors. When John Williams sat down with director Jack Smite, I wonder if the two agreed right away that the battle scenes would go unscored. And after spotting the film and figuring out which scenes were going to need music, Williams figured out that he would only need to write about 30 minutes of music for the 132-minute film. And that's what I think is a both disappointing and genius thing about the score. I'm a product of my generation, and my ears were conditioned to be ready for more music than appears in the film. My brain felt some of the tense battle scenes needed some music to help elevate the mood. And of course, that really is the result of 21st century movie music policies. It's not really the way movie music should be written, and Williams has managed to hold fast to not putting in more music than needed, except in a few cases around the turn of the century. As I watched the film, I realized it really was a genius idea to leave the film largely music-free. It keeps with producer Walter Mirisch's vision to create a realistic film, and music can often take us out of that feeling. Mirisch, who was last mentioned on this podcast as executive producer of Fiddler on the Roof, lost director John Gillerman over this vision because Gillerman wanted to build models for the battle scenes instead of using footage from previous war films. Gillerman should have been allowed to give his ideas a chance since he did direct The Towering Inferno to great success, using a 70-foot model of the big building that looked completely real. Gillerman wasn't the only person who wanted to work on the film, but was turned down by Mirisch. Jerry Goldsmith had worked with Smite before, including the films The Illustrated Man in 1969 and The Traveling Executioner in 1970. Goldsmith was the composer Smite wanted to work on Midway, but Mirisch already wanted Williams, who won an Oscar for working on Fiddler on the Roof, and was red hot after winning the Oscar for the Jaws score the same month that filming began on Midway. Based on the music that is in the finished product, I have a sneaking suspicion that Smite asked Williams to create something Goldsmith-esque, which is sort of what I hear in the score. And that extends to the Midway March. When I first heard it performed at the Boston Symphony Hall in 2004, it sounded new to my ears. When I heard it played at the end of Midway in 2019, it sounded a little familiar. Here's the Midway March as performed in the film. Midway March 
And here's the music that I thought sounded like it. That's Jerry Goldsmith's Oscar-nominated music from Patton, written in 1970. I hadn't seen that film until 2010, and it remains one of my favorite biopics. I suppose when it comes to writing military marches, there isn't a lot of range a composer can use. But I just have to wonder if Smite used Williams as a conduit for a Goldsmith sound in Midway. So the film starts off with a title crawl that tells us about the use of actual battle footage, but it is done silently for the most part. No music to guide us into the film. Watching the film, I was not aware that this opening crawl originally had music composed for it. When I dove into the CD release of the score and heard the music that was supposed to accompany it, I thought it was a mistake to not include this music, especially since the opening sequence has music in it. Here's the music for that opening title crawl. And the music that follows is the best in the film outside of the Midway March. It's ruled by the piano and percussion, and it scores the Doolittle Raid of 1942 when the Americans launched their first attack on Japan after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We see actual battle footage, presumably from that raid, but actually from previous war movies. And the music underneath goes largely unheard over the sound of airplane engines and bomb explosions. But here on the baton, it's all about the music, so this is what you couldn't really hear in the film version.
The music in this opening three minutes should have been switched. The music in the prologue should have been included. Then fade to the first shot of airplanes getting ready for takeoff and continue from there without music. Yeah, that's a hard statement for me to make, especially because I really like this music. But sometimes you have to let good music go to service the film as a whole. Remember when I was talking about this in the Iger Sanction, about the 50 miles of desert cue? The same thing applies. The sound effects are just too loud, you can't pay attention to the music, and something suffers, and usually it's the music. In this case, I think the music suffers just a little bit. After that, one of the highlights of Williams' score is the unbiased nature of the music. The score doesn't lean heavily on American heroics and gives some equal weight to the Japanese Navy. There's a scene about 30 minutes into the film when the Japanese are preparing to depart for their attack on Midway. Williams could have made the music here villainous, since the Japanese are the villains of the film. But it has a heroic flavor to it with the brass, and a little Japanese flavor with the woodwinds at the end of the scene. And if there is a main theme to the film, it's the one you heard in the prologue. It's a theme played on French horn mostly, giving it some stature. And that's fitting since the music is mostly played in scenes featuring the legendary Henry Fonda. It gets a lot of play in a scene when Fonda's character, Admiral Nimitz, receives news that three of the four Japanese aircraft carriers have been destroyed. Fonda gives one of those big movie speeches here, and tells his men that he wants that fourth carrier blown to bits as well. Fonda doesn't raise his voice or go into hysterics, which dictated that Williams needed to keep the music low-key as well. And boy, does he knock it out of the park.
with very few pilots available to attack the fourth cruiser, Charlton Heston's character, a fictional man named Matt Garth, climbs into a plane and helps destroy the fourth Japanese boat. But his plane is riddled with bullets during the fight, and he struggles to make a safe landing back on the U.S. carrier. It's Charlton Heston, so we expect him to live through the movie, right? Unfortunately, no. His plane crashes upon landing on the American ship, bursting into flames. The music creates so much tension with the brass playing ascending notes and the violins nervously sawing out that tremolo as the plane gets closer to the carrier. The main takeaway from John Williams' work on Midway is that it gave him some practice at writing marches, something he hadn't really been able to do much to that point, but it will be a mainstay of his career. That would start 15 months after he finished recording the score to Midway when he would begin conducting the London Symphony Orchestra for the score to Star Wars, bringing us one of the most famous marches in movie history. Midway is getting a remake that will be in theaters in fall 2019. That remake is directed by Roland Emmerich, who worked with John Williams in 2000 on The Patriot. I wonder if Roland Emmerich reached out to John Williams to ask if he would be willing to not only work with him again, but to work on the movie Midway and maybe even flesh out some ideas that maybe he couldn't put into the 1976 film, including writing music for some battle scenes. John Williams was very busy in 2019 working on the score to The Rise of Skywalker, the last Star Wars movie and doing some CD projects with Anna Sophia Mutter. So I'm sure he was very busy, but I do wonder if Roland Emmerich even reached out to him or even if John Williams was on his list of top composers that he wanted. It'll be interesting to see how Thomas Wander and Harold Closer do with the score. I don't really plan to see the film, but we'll see what the reviews say. Given the pedigree of the film Midway, and the fact that its June 1976 release coincided with the bicentennial of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, it's no surprise that Midway did well with the public. It earned $43 million at the box office to rank 10th for 1976 films. Surprisingly, the sound mixers did not receive an Oscar nomination despite the whole publicity surrounding Sense Around and the competition was too tight that year for John Williams to break into the original score category, leaving him on the outside looking in for the first time in six years. That was the year Jerry Goldsmith won his only Oscar, writing the music for The Omen, which is my favorite score of his. Williams had one more writing assignment that year to close out 1976, and that was for the thriller Black Sunday, which would be released in 1977. As we will hear on the next episode, Black Sunday is a pretty good score for a not-so-good movie. And that episode will feature a guest co-host joining me to talk about the score to Black Sunday. 
I know you're clamoring for that Star Wars episode, but you'll just have to wait a little bit longer, friends. Until then, John Williams fans, the baton is down. Thank you.